and today I'm joined by British conservative MEP Daniel Hannan, author of one of the 10 essays on populism that comprised the New Criterion's new collection, Vox Populi, The Perils and Promises of Populism. Mr. Hannan was one of the chief exponents of the Leave campaign, whose efforts culminated in Brexit. In addition to his regular writings, he's also the author of an excellent book, the title of which likely qualifies as a microaggression today, Inventing Freedom, How the English-Speaking Peoples Made the Modern World. Mr. Hannan's essay, In Vox Populi, is fittingly titled Insects of the Hour, an homage to Edmund Burke. Thank you for joining us today, Daniel. Hey, it's great to be here, Ben. By the way, asking someone the time is a microaggression these days, as far as I can work out, at least on your side of the Atlantic. <laughs> what isn't a microaggression on our side yeah. of the Atlantic? <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. Everything is, everything is judged according to violating some imagined sacred value rather than truth or relevance or pertinence or any other criterion. And all of that as a political cudgel to be wielded against your opponents in reality, under the guise of yeah. virtue. Always one way around, though, isn't it? It's uh, the, the microaggressions. I mean, you, you never, you never hear of a microaggression because somebody's patriotism was offended. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, we'll see at the end of four years of President Trump whether it changes at all. Mm. So the the topic of our conversation today, broadly, is populism, and in a conversation like this, it always pays to define our terms. The term populism is often thrown around pejoratively. How would you define it? Yeah, I mean, it has come to mean something that other people like, but I don't. I mean, that, that's that's the, the the classic use of it. So calling for tax cuts, calling for deregulation, exposing corruption in high places, uh, calling for a referendum, honoring a referendum result, anything that the speaker doesn't like, but that plainly has popular support is called populism. I, I mean, I think that, that the kind of core real definition is a sense that the people in office are governing not in the interests of the population at large, but in the interests of a, a minority, a political class, a particular caste. And sometimes that's true. And, and w when that's true, you know, populism can be said to be a necessary antibody. But when it's not true, then it turns out to be empty. Yeah, and you write something to that effect in this essay in Vox Populi, and I'll quote, The essential feature of all populist movements is their belief that an elite is governing in its own interests rather than that of the general population, unquote. Given that the elite across the Western world are generally educated at similar institutions, come from similar backgrounds, and inculcated in the same sort of progressive cultural and ideological milieu, should populism today almost definitionally have an anti-progressive character to it? Mm, it's a very good question. I mean, it, it's true that people are all educated in the same way. And this, I think, is what in their own minds legitimizes their belief that public opinion is sometimes wrong and ought to be overridden. Empirically, it's very hard to stand up the idea that the elites really are smarter than the rest of us. I mean, if I if I think of where establishment opinion has been in my country down the decades. I mean, all the clever people in the 30s knew that it was right to appease Hitler. You know, all the clever people in the 40s knew that it was right to nationalize industries. All the clever people in the 50s knew that we needed economic planning. All the clever people in the 60s knew that we, we ought to stop having uh, streaming and setting in education and, and teach everyone at the same level. You know, and so it goes on, the ERM, the Euro, again and again, you get this kind of groupthink among the clever people, 
which turns out to be utter bunkum. The most recent example, I would say, being the bailouts. Uh, there was never any popular support, either in the US or in Britain, for taking taxpayers' money to rescue some very wealthy people from the consequences of their own mistakes. And yet, you know, every editorial, all the political parties, all the, you know, any any doubt that there's such a thing as an establishment is, is dispelled when you see this. All of these people came together and said, no, we need to do this thing in order to, to recapitalize the banks. And so... I think in that sense, you're right. The the, the, the populist impulse is, uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's conservative because it's, it, it's often radical, but it is certainly not of the left. It, it is, uh, it's generally defined against a soft left elite consensus. I've often held that if you want to look at what direction America is going, we can look across the ocean at what's happened in Europe. We're always about 10 years behind the the progressive curve. One of the things you emphasize in your essay is the extent to which self-rule and sovereignty more broadly eroded in Great Britain under the EU. Would you elaborate on the situation the British people faced? Because I think it's kind of shocking to see and hear what you were actually, the rule under which uh, Great Britain was controlled by people from afar and an elite class from afar. Mm. I mean, I think it's quite important to understand that the the thinking behind the European Union is that uh, patriotism and populism were two sides of the same coin, and it was a terribly bad and dangerous coin. Uh, The founders of the EU had come through the Second World War, in their minds, the, the very fact of democracy was kind of associated on some level with demagoguery and Mussolini and fascism and so on. And so they saw the European Union as a kind of inoculation against that. And they quite deliberately vested supreme power in the hands of people who were invulnerable to public opinion. So to this day, legislative and executive power in the EU are concentrated in the hands of 28 appointed European commissioners who are not answerable to anybody. And that, that wasn't a design bug. That was entirely how, it, how the system was supposed to work. That was how the, the bacillus against uh, populism would, would be uh, entrenched. This has, of course, now given rise to a kind of thinking where any expression of national self-interest is regarded as intrinsically wicked. And closer European integration, the, the elevation of powers, the transfer of powers upwards is regarded as an end in itself, not as, as, as a proportionate solution to an identified problem. So they don't say, um, you know, here's this problem with um, crime and therefore we need to have uh, pan-European uh, criminal justice mechanisms or here's a problem with uh, food supplies so we need to have a pan-European agriculture system. The, the unification of Europe is an end in itself because the primary goal here is the erosion of national sovereignty because that's seen as the way that leads to ethnic hatred and war and blah, blah, blah. And it was really that that Britain voted against in 2016. I mean, had the European Union been a club for countries to come together and sort out their differences in common and achieve collectively what they couldn't do singly, there'd have been no argument, there'd have been no referendum. You'd have to be mad to be against that. But the, the plan very clearly and very explicitly was to create a kind of country called Europe with its own flag and anthem and passport and driving license and borders and civil service and all the rest of it, in which the old nation states would have a kind of subordinate or, or provincial status. And that's ultimately what's driven British Euroscepticism from the start. And it's why 52% of us voted to leave. Why is self-determination considered, as, as you termed it, 
wicked in the case of European countries, but when it comes to the rest of the world, for the people who call it wicked, self-determination is viewed as the highest uh, virtue and, and a moral end in and of itself. To be fair, I don't think it is considered that way by the EU. They dislike national self-determination everywhere. Um, you know, they, they think that the rest of the world should copy the EU and form regional unions with supranational parliaments and so on. And they, they, they poured a lot of money into various regional organizations to encourage this in, in Mercosur, in, in Central America, in uh, Africa, and so on. It, this is then, of course, <laughs> they then turn around and say, look, the whole world is forming into these regional blocks, so we need to follow, <laughs> when, of course, it's they who are uh, 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 sponsoring all these regional blocks. Um, I, I think what you've said is truer of the American left than of the of the European left, where where all kinds of nationalisms are, are bad. It, I think it is it's more true in the U.S. that you know Venezuelan nationalism is a good thing, or Nicaraguan nationalism, or Palestinian nationalism, but but Western nationalism is a bad thing. Uh, and I think that that really comes down to this hierarchy of victimhood, the way in which a number of people. Of, of progressive American leftists rank the world into a sort of pyramid uh, of, of privilege and define your status as right or wrong, not by the intrinsic worth of what you're doing, but by where you are on that pyramid. I, you know, I was, I was just in California and it was very funny. I was looking around a sort of a reconstructed village and you could see the moment in the wall text. The, the, the first part was about the Spanish colonization. And so, of course, there the oppressor group were the Spanish and the, the, the goodies were the indigenous peoples. And then suddenly, the moment English-speaking people arrive on the scene, the, the Spanish become the good guys because they're suddenly oppressed. Now, presumably, there was a moment when, when these were exactly the same people. <laughs> but in the, in the leftist uh, hierarchy of victimhood, everything is defined by where you are uh, in that power pyramid because you know, victimhood is, is somehow thought to confer virtue automatically. And conversely, uh, being a large and powerful country puts you in the wrong. And I'm afraid that in most of the encounters that Britain and America have had with the rest of the world, we've tended to have the technological edge. And that's what puts us in the wrong. What, in your view, looking back on it now and still engaged in the fight to, to a large extent as well, are the both political and ideological lessons of Brexit? Well, the first thing is trust the people. You know, the, uh, I mean, rather uh, in contradiction to the, the, the Vox Populi, Vox Dei, um, the, you know, the original poem, which was a, a uh, sustained rant against democracy, actually trusting people tends to work. Uh, the, the, the Bill Buckley line about, you know, the first thousand people chosen at random from the Boston phone book being wiser than the faculty of Harvard. By and large, that's true. And you can see that in what's happened since Brexit. During the referendum, we were told, not just by Remain campaigners, which is kind of fair enough when they're trying to make an argument during the referendum, but we were told by the IMF, by the OECD, by the Treasury, by the Bank of England, by every authority, that the very act of voting leave would trigger an immediate economic downturn. Uh, the governor of the Bank of England spoke about a technical recession in 2016. In fact, we, we grew faster after the vote than before it. Uh, we were told that the stock exchange would collapse. It's broken every record. We were told that there'd be another half million unemployed. In fact, unemployment has fallen by nearly that amount. So the people were right and the experts were wrong. I mean, if you judge people by the, 
the hard empirical test of what were they prophesying and where are we, uh, all of these organizations, the international think tanks, the banks, the uh, ratings agencies, they all got this wrong. And the solid, commonsensical voter who said, well, actually, you know what, we're a fairly big country and, you know, as long as we get the right decisions at home, we'll be okay. And it's not really uh, in the EU's interest or even in their capacity to inflict real damage on us if they wanted to. They turned out to be right. Ultimately, do you think Euroscepticism will triumph on the continent? In other words, will we see the breakup of the EU and what would be the ramifications of that? Or do you see uh, the folks who are in power continuing to clutch ever more tightly to that power? Both. I think in some countries there is a more developed sense of national identity of, uh, and of the historical importance of, demo of national democratic mechanisms and procedures. Uh, that's less true in some of the kind of core founder members of the EU. So I could see a situation where over the next 10 years, some of the more Atlanticist maritime peripheral members kind of peel off and follow Britain into a relationship with the EU that is defined by trade rather than political amalgamation. Uh, I could see that applying to Denmark, to Sweden, uh, maybe to the Netherlands, maybe to Ireland, maybe even to Portugal. But in a lot of the core countries, I think we are effectively in a, in a post-national way of thinking now. Uh, in fairness, in many of these cases, the, 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 the national feeling was weak in the first place. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Brussels. Um, Belgian national identity is understandably weak. There's no Belgian language, there's no Belgian culture, there's precious little Belgian history. So, you know, people here identify much more easily as Europeans because there's there's a very feeble sense of uh, of nationhood. I think that's also the case for different reasons in Germany and Austria. Uh, so my guess is that 10 or 15 years from now, there will still be a European Union. It'll be much more integrated than now. It'll have its own taxes and its own army and all the rest of it. But it will not be as large as it is now. I think some of the the more outlying members will have a looser relationship with it. And you know what? I think that'll make everybody happier. It'll allow the integrationist countries to get on with what they've always wanted to do. And it'll allow the more free trading, less politically uh, integrationist countries to get what they came for, which was a common market, not a common government. Lastly, and I suspect you'll say that this varies by nation, but is there a sizable constituency broadly for a classical liberal resurgence uh, among Europeans writ large? No, I have to say at the moment there isn't. And I attribute this mainly to the enduring after effects of the financial crisis. I think the, the bailouts served to delegitimize the market system in the eyes of a lot of people. Up until then, it had looked as though it was open and meritocratic. And certainly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, there was no competitor system. After the bailouts, and really for the only time in my life, a kind of core piece of the Marxist analysis seemed to be true, which was, you know, uh, these guys turn out not to be free marketeers at all the moment things go wrong. They're happy to debauch the public purse and help themselves to the money of, of, of lower income people. And, you know, that, that was indeed the impact of the, uh, of the, the TARP policy in, in, in your country and in the, the bailouts here. And I think a lot of the shakeup of politics since is a delayed response 
to the way in which the financial crisis was handled. I think that Bernie Trump, uh, Bernie Trump, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Greece's Syriza and Spain's Podemos and Kurt Wilders in the Netherlands and Marine Le Pen in, in France, they're all in different ways a, a reaction uh, to the way in which we mishandled the financial crisis. I think, you know, the cycle will come to an end and there'll be eventually a return to normal politics and the, the general trend over the last half century has been towards more classical liberal ideas. But at the moment, you'd have to say we are far from that. And even in Britain, which is traditionally by far the most free market of all of the EU countries, you know, two in five of my fellow countrymen at the last election voted for a party led by somebody who regrets the outcome of the Cold War. And that is not something I ever expected to say. So, so you would suggest, uh, in a sense, that the populist counter-reaction to what's occurred in the world over the last, say, generation is more about economics than culture. I think it is, yes. I think this tends to happen with all financial crises. A financial crisis is a, is a different beast from a normal economic crisis. It, it lasts longer, uh, the effects are deeper, and finance is harder for people to understand in the first place. It, 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 you know, it, it kind of happens on sufferance for, for most voters. They don't get how moving money around can be a job like driving a combine harvester. And th that, that doesn't bother them when, when their own living standards are improving, but it bothers them very much when, when they stop improving. Uh, so yes, I think, that, I think we're dealing primarily with a, uh, with a financial challenge. I mean, as I understand it, uh, illegal migration from Mexico to the US at the time of the last presidential election had not been lower since the early 70s. So uh, the sudden salience of that issue, I don't think was a a response to a, a change in, in migration. Uh, I think we were seeing something else. I think we were, we were seeing a sense in which uh, a number of people felt that their life, their living standard was declining through no fault of theirs. And then to rub it in, they were being insulted. They were being told that, you know, they were stupid, ignorant, racist hicks. And that bothered them at a time of economic stagnation in a way that it wouldn't have done in a time of rising prosperity. And you'd suggest it's analogous in Europe with mass migration, uh, primarily from the Islamic world, both North Africa and the Levant as well, that it's a similar sort of uh, trajectory? Well, you know, there hasn't, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't think that really works as the explanation because there's no particular uh, correlation between the countries that have experienced the strongest populist reactions and the countries that are the recipients of the most inward migration. Uh, by far the, the biggest per capita recipients of, uh, uh, of migration from North Africa and, and the Levant have been Sweden and Germany. Uh, but, you know, the big uh, political earthquakes have happened in Spain, in Greece, in possibly now coming up in Italy. So I, I, I don't think immigration itself is the trigger. Uh, people become exercised about immigration when other things are going on. And as I say, the other thing here is that uh, we who defend the free market system should be uh, clear about this. We're defending a counterintuitive system. Uh, the free market works in practice, but it's difficult to explain to people in theory. You know, you'd think that sitting down and planning everything sensibly would 
be far more productive than letting everything regulate itself higgledy-piggledy. The only reason we that, that isn't true is because we know that every time it's tried, it, it, it ends in disaster. But when the market system is seen also not to be delivering, people very easily revert to the instincts and intuitions that we've inherited from our kind of hunter-gatherer forebears and which which make it difficult for people to grasp why the market system works. You know, the, 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 For example, the idea that something has an intrinsic price uh, it's been a, a persistent fallacy in all human history uh, that if you're buying at something called the wrong price, that you're a speculator or a profiteer. Uh, how many pogroms, how many socialist revolutions, how many uh, smashing up of, of uh, merchant quarters have there been because of people thinking with their hunter-gatherer brains that just as an object has a fixed volume and a fixed mass, so it has a fixed value. Now, that kind of counterintuitive stuff doesn't matter when employment is rising and when prosperity is rising. But when people think, ah, all those guys kind of moving money around on a screen, they were paying themselves bonuses and I haven't seen a pay rise in 10 years, suddenly all of these fundamental objections come in. And, and therefore, those of us who, who understand why markets are the best vehicle of freedom and prosperity and why they're particularly uh, good news for the poorest people and, and lead to the highest and most accelerated rise in living standards for the people who are, are starting from furthest behind. We need, I think, at a time like this to, to start explaining the whole system again from scratch and explaining why all the alternatives lead at the very least to a diminution of freedom and at worst lead to outright oppression. Yeah, and to, and to your point, maybe it starts with uh, we all want order in our lives, but the spontaneous order that the market provides is the best we can hope for. And to try to impose order, you end up creating absolute chaos and misery for everyone. And maybe that's the starting point. That's very true. Very true. But also, I mean, look at look at the popularity of protectionism in the U.S. now. You know, look at how both candidates at the last election thought that there were votes in saying we're going to you know, make you pay more for what you're buying. Uh, they didn't put it like that, obviously. They, they, they said, we're going to stop the Chinese dumping or we're going to stop the Mexicans taking outsourced companies. But it amounts to we're going to uh, tax American consumers. Uh, and this was broadly popular. And the reason it's broadly popular, again, it's, you know, free trade is a counterintuitive idea. Uh, we evolved on the savannas of Pleistocene Africa. We are uh, the idea of depending on strangers whom we cannot see runs up against a million years of evolution encoded in our genomes. And that's why there's always the possibility for a politician to stir up those deep instincts and intuitions against the market system. And ultimately, the way in which you win this argument is to show that it's working. But as I say, because of the way we mishandled the financial crisis in 2008, we haven't been in a very strong position to do that. The name of the book is Vox Populi, and we've been speaking with the author of one of its exceptional essays, British conservative MEP Daniel Hannan. Mr. Hannan, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Ben. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway. <laughs>